So there's dive bars, there's Dave and Buster's type bars, but they're all hospitality establishments to serve you alcohol, serve you food, give you things to do while you're there. That was the kind of model we were putting together because in cannabis, you can buy cannabis all over the place. There's states with thousands of dispensaries and where can you smoke it? You can smoke it at home. It's not adequate, not appropriate. And states are starting to realize that and cities are starting to realize that. So the point of now is new states come on board and legalize adult use cannabis or recreational cannabis as it's also called. They almost immediately focus on the lounge aspect and allowing places where people can go smoke. Welcome to the Franchise Founders Podcast. We are on a mission to help aspiring entrepreneurs just like you take action through franchise ownership, allowing you to obtain more financial freedom, time with family, and ultimately a business that can run on its own without you. Well, good afternoon or morning, wherever you are right now. I'm very excited about this episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast. We've got Ron Silverstein on, co-founder of Bud's Place, and of course, my co-host, Christian Dadalek, coming in live. What's up, Christian? What's up, man? Excited for this episode. It's going to be a good one. Absolutely. And Christian, you're a champ, man. What'd you get up at? Like, Our first episode was at 9.30 Eastern, so we recorded another episode this morning at 6.30, your time. Yep. Hey, whatever it takes, man. I want this podcast to be good. And so all I needed was a little bit of coffee. So I made sure to get that. I don't know how you do it. Like LA, like the Pacific time. Whenever I'm there and everything's going on in the East Coast and I wake up to like all those text messages and emails, it gives me anxiety. (laughs) Just got to have those boundaries, right? Yeah. Well, Ron, welcome to the show. If you've listened, we never like to do the bio. We like to have you do the bio. You're going to explain yourself better than us. So could you give us a little background? Sure, Dan and Christian. First, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on and spread the word about this exploding new industry that's getting started in the U.S. I'm Ron Silberstein, president and co-founder of Bud's Place Franchising. So we're a franchisor of social cannabis consumption lounges. My background in franchising is I'm a certified franchise executive was CFO and chief admin officer of the largest retail golf store franchisor in the world. We had system-wide sales of about $200 million, and this was $200 million 20 years ago. So a lot of money. We had over 150 stores open all over the U.S. and in some other parts of the world. So I was CFO and chief admin officer of a group of companies, which included the franchisor. We also had some manufacturing companies and different things going on at .com. Got a lot of franchising experience while I was with them. Helped plan the annual conventions. Wrote, and this will age me a little, but helped write the UFOC, as they were called back then. Now FDD, Franchise Disclosure Document. Went to the annual golf trade shows, met with vendors, met with franchisees, did a lot of different things. So, Learned a lot about franchising then and basically fell in love with franchising then. Franchising and golf were very similar. People, once they were in the golf industry, we'd see them every year at the PGA show and all that. But, you know, they were with Callaway one year and then ping the next year. And with franchising, it's kind of the same thing. Once you're in franchising, 
you tend to stay in franchising, you may move around, you may start your own companies, but you fall in love with it. And, you know, it's all about the people and the companies and sharing of information and helping people build wealth and become business owners and add jobs. There's so many different facets to franchising that help people out, basically, that it's hard not to love it once you're in it. So got a lot of franchising experience. I'm also a business guy and entrepreneur and CPA, and those words may not all go together very well. <laughs> but for me, it's all worked. And, you know, real excited about our concept. So about four years ago, a friend of mine from high school, Mark Cohen, the other co-founder of Bud's Place, called me up. He had this idea for consumption lounges. And I flew out to Vegas and met with Mark and, you know, we talked about it. And he filled me in on, you know, why he thought it was a good idea and why these were needed. And the whole time I'm out there with them, it's like, can it be franchised? Can it be franchised? You know, when you're in franchising and you hear of something new, you know, or hear of a better way to do something, it's like, can it be franchised? Because no, I don't want to own a hundred consumption lounges. I'd rather, you know, own one and have 99 franchises and do it that way and build up the franchise company while helping other people be business owners and, you know, in franchising this way, they're handling all the day-to-day operations of their store. It's their challenge if a manager quits or somebody calls in sick or all that, and we're going to be good at supporting them and giving them a concept they can make a lot of money at and giving them buying power and all the different things that go with franchising, getting them trained and all that. So I left Las Vegas. I liked the idea. I saw a big need for these. You know, wanted to make sure first, can something that's related to cannabis be franchised since cannabis is federally illegal? And then second, in the back of my mind was, you know, if it can be franchised, can it be insured? You know, is there insurance available for consumption lounges since it's such a brand new thing and since it's federally illegal and blah, blah, blah. So got home, called some franchise attorneys that I knew. We found out it could be franchised. Talked to some insurance guys I know, found out there was insurance available. And then we started moving forward on putting a concept together that we thought would be popular, would be legal, you know, would follow the rules, could be replicated, you know, all the different things that go into franchising. And the bottom line was, you know, will we be able to put a concept together that can be profitable for franchisees? Because that's still, you know, a main thing is. Can the franchisees make money? Can they make a lot of money or enough money? Because that's one of the things that goes into having a concept that people want to buy into and help grow. And we put something together that we think checked all the boxes or, you know, checked most of the boxes because there's, you know, new boxes always coming up in every business that you've got to be aware of and be able to adapt to or react to or anticipate to stay cutting edge. We know that it's one of the challenges to being the first one into a new industry. This isn't just a new concept, it's a new industry. We don't have anything to copy. A unique thing about franchising that I found is from concept to concept, it's still all just franchising and they're all very similar. It might be different things going on. You know, it could be a service business, a retail business, a restaurant, but as the franchisor, it's still franchising. 
And we had to put a model together that would work and a model together where people could make money because that's what helps us grow also and build a brand and, you know, be one of the first ones in. And then we wanted a mindset of the management team of, you know, being proactive, being willing to try new things because we know once we get some open, we're going to be copied and everybody copying us is going to try to improve on us and do it better than what we're doing. And we always need to try to stay a step ahead of them. So, you know, starting in a new industry and with a new concept, we were focused on putting the right team together of people, you know, to work with us on Bud's Place. And I'm of the mindset that I don't want everybody to think the same way I do. First, my wife would tell you there aren't many people that think the way I do. So, but I wanted different opinions. I didn't want yes people on the team. And it's like, speak up, tell me what you think be willing to make mistakes, be willing to try new things. And it's all a focus on putting together the best kind of business model that we can put together today. And maybe tomorrow it needs to change, you know, to keep being the best. And we've got that kind of team we think we put together. We've got some experienced franchising people on the team. We've got some experienced food and beverage and hospitality people on the team. We've got some people with a cannabis background on the team. We've got a couple of veterans on the team, you know, and everybody's really focused on just a business model that's going to be popular, that's going to be successful, and that's going to help get this industry launched. I love it. I think what's so exciting about the whole concept is just the fact that it is an entirely new industry. Like you said, there's really nothing and no one to copy. So you're building this thing from scratch, and that's super exciting. And I think. The industry as a whole is just showing a massive trajectory. There's a ton of potential. But I'm curious, I mean, what were the, some of the core things? You know, if someone with such experience in business and in franchising, what did you see in the industry that really drew you in and you said, hey, if we can build something, a model in this space that really makes sense for people, this can be a real home run? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we we're focused on first was what industries, you know, can we compare this to? to be able to have the vision for what kind of potential we have. And we kept coming back to the alcohol industry and the bar industry. You can drink at home. So you can, you know, buy alcohol, you know, in a liquor store or a state-run store where you're getting the lowest price possible for your alcohol. And you can drink at home. But there's 60,000 bars in the U.S. of all different shapes and sizes. So people... With alcohol, you know, there's a big social aspect to alcohol. There's a big social aspect to cannabis. You go out to a bar, you're going to pay more for your alcohol to drink it in a bar, but you've got people around you or you can go yourself. And we just kept coming back to that. So there's dive bars, there's Dave and Buster's type bars, but they're all hospitality establishments to serve you alcohol, serve you food, give you things to do while you're there. That was the kind of model we were putting together because in cannabis, you can buy cannabis all over the place. There's states with thousands of dispensaries. And where can you smoke it? You can smoke it at home. It's not adequate, not appropriate. And states are starting to realize that and cities are starting to realize that to the point of now as new states come on board and legalize adult use cannabis or recreational cannabis, as it's also called, they almost immediately focus on the lounge aspect and allowing places where people can go smoke. They're tired of people, you know, of walking out of your hotel room in Las Vegas when you're at a convention and you just smell marijuana everywhere. 
you know, are walking down the streets of San Francisco or almost any major city and many suburbs where people are smoking cannabis on the streets, smoking it in the parks, smoking it wherever they can smoke it. Because in a lot of places, you can't smoke it in your hotel room, can't smoke it out at the pool, can't smoke it inside anywhere, but you can buy it everywhere. So we saw a big problem. You know, one of the things in business and in franchising is what problem are you solving or what issue are you solving? Where with us, it's the where, where can I smoke? I can buy here, I can buy there and they let me smoke it in my backyard, you know, but I want to have friends over. I want to hang out with my buddies or I want to just go in and have a place at work, you know, to do my work. And I live in Detroit and it's zero degrees out in the winter, or I'm not going to go outside and work all day and smoke in my backyard when it's zero out, I need places to smoke it. So we saw a huge problem with, there aren't places for people to smoke. Then, you know, we saw a few lounges open in the US that are primarily owned by dispensaries and inside of a dispensary. And they think that a consumption lounge is a little room with a few tables and chairs and couches and maybe a TV for your customer to smoke what they just bought and then see you later we can do better than that. You know, we thought we could do better than that. So with my background in franchising and as a CPA, I've worked with a lot of restaurant clients and food and beverage clients and had a client that I thought would be a perfect partner for us. They have a lot of franchising experience. They have food, you know, we're focused on a model that it's easy to train franchisees on and easy for them to train their staff on. So we wanted food that's easy to prepare and that's easy to train the staff to prepare. And that's popular, you know, and a big enough menu where people can come back, you know, if we have regular customers where they can come back and order different things all the time. So we added Crave Hot Dogs and Barbecue to our team. That's Samantha and Sal Rincion who they've got about 20 restaurants open in the U.S. right now with a lot more on the way that are waiting for loan approval. Primarily, they're good people. They're trustworthy. They run a good, clean operation. They've won a lot of awards. They were the kind of people we wanted on our team. We also needed to put you know, a team together that's got experience training franchisees. So They've trained franchisees. They've helped build up other franchise systems. Samantha was a consultant for a long time and helping systems get up and running. They were the perfect partner for us. So they have some equity in our company and they're a very integral part of the team and will be helping us with training, with buying power. Because since they already have restaurants open, we've got the kitchen equipment vendors and the food distributors with access to and, you know, with some buying power already, even though we're just a startup. We have a former Domino's guy on our team who managed regional territories for Domino's where he had hundreds of franchisees that he was helping. And he also owns some Domino's. So he's got a lot of franchising experience and food and beverage experience. And we tried to put a team together of successful people who love franchising, who have the experience we need to help us get going. Because, you know, as you know, it's very tough being a new franchisor. Just being a new franchisor is difficult to get going and get launched, let alone a new franchisor in a new industry. We have a pipeline of probably 20 people right now that want to own the second Bud's place. So it's like, okay. 
Yeah, it's a unique kind of person that's willing to jump into a new industry and, you know, be one of the first movers in an industry and wants to build something. I happen to get turned on by new stuff and starting new things and building new things. And our whole team is like that. You know, our juices are flowing, just waiting to get that first one open. So we're working hard right now to get that first one open. We're looking at locations we're talking to construction companies and architects and different suppliers now about getting this first lounge up and running so that everything else can take off. Thank you for sharing that. I have a question for you. And just kind of going back to something you were mentioning, the market landscape and deciding to move forward with this business. You know, I live in New York City, right? So if I want to go to a bar or a restaurant, I walk there and drinking, you know, most people know their limits anyway, right, of what they can drink. If you're in the suburbs, you drive somewhere, you know that it's a two drink minimum. If you have beer, right, we all know the legal limits to then be able to safely operate a car and drive home. How does it work with cannabis, right? So you guys are, let's say, not in Las Vegas where you're walking on the strip, but you're in a more suburban area. Are you encouraging that they just always Uber or walk to their facility always? Or like, is there a way that people know how much they're able to consume before going home? That's something that's always been unclear to me with cannabis. Yeah, that's a great question, Dan. So first, what's going to be involved in a Bud's place is there's going to be extensive employee training on how to work with and talk with and deal with customers that are using cannabis and that are under the influence of cannabis, may become impaired, may not know their limits or may know their limits. There's different, probably similar to alcohol, but you know, there's different tolerances where some people can use a lot more cannabis without being affected and others use a tiny bit of cannabis and they're wasted and they're falling asleep or, you know, whatever. So we're not going to be encouraging customers to drive, but we know that there will be customers who drive. You know, we're going to be trained and have staff that's trained to recognize when somebody shouldn't be driving, but there's still only going to be so much we can do to encourage them to ride share. We'll have ride share agreements with companies, you know, or local drivers to help get people home safely. There's not a lot of data out there yet on cannabis use and how it affects different people. You know, unlike with alcohol, there's a lot of data out there. But with cannabis, since it was federally illegal, there wasn't much research being done. It wasn't being funded, things like that. They're starting to fund research with cannabis and cannabis usage. You know, law enforcement's way behind. Insurance is way behind. You know, they don't know how it affects somebody who's driving. And, you know, everybody gets affected differently is part of the problem. But one thing that's pretty much well-known out there is that cannabis users tend to be far less aggressive than people under the influence of alcohol. They may drive slower than they're supposed to drive versus, you know, 80 or 90 or 100 miles an hour. On our end, since we're a bring-your-own consumption lounge and we're not serving them the cannabis, it's going to be different than a bar where when they run into problems, it's usually because they kept serving somebody when they should have stopped. We're not going to be serving them cannabis. It's going to be on the customer to bring their own, to use their own, and to know that they're okay to leave, you know, and get home in whichever manner they need to get home. But on our end, we're going to be trained to recognize when 
somebody shouldn't be driving and try to interact with them properly to get them to realize that they need to Uber home or walk home or have a friend drive them or, you know, and it'll be educating customers even on before they get to the lounge that it may be wise to Uber or take a party bus or something like that rather than be operating a motor vehicle. So it's the sum of the same issues as alcohol. And it's really just trying to be trained properly and interact with customers properly so they know they shouldn't drive. But that said, it's going to be very difficult for us to stop somebody from walking out and getting in their car. And hopefully the data over time will prove out that customers leaving a consumption lounge aren't going out and getting in their car and then getting in an accident and hurting somebody because nobody wants that to happen. So it's you know, one of the challenges of having the lounges, but one of the opportunities to make sure we're doing everything we can possibly do to keep our customers safe, you know, when they're inside and when they leave. If you're enjoying this episode, please click the subscribe button and make sure to connect with the Franchise Founders Podcast on LinkedIn. That's fascinating. So really it is at its core, I mean, you're really providing a venue for people to come in. I didn't realize that you weren't even serving the cannabis right. at the location. So why was it that you decided not to offer the cannabis? I mean, obviously no inventory issues. That's nice. And then some of the liability, it sounds like you're avoiding from not having to do that. But what else was the mindset behind that? The mindset behind that was, first, the rules are different everywhere. Some states don't allow a consumption lounge to sell cannabis. Michigan's one of them. You know, so we could have a dispensary next door and separate doorways and you know that kind of stuff. But in some states, you can't sell cannabis in a consumption lounge. But a big thing was we really wanted to be focused on being a lounge. And so the challenge was putting a model together where a franchisee or us, if it's a company-owned lounge, can make enough money without selling cannabis. You know, because we talk to a lot of people, it's like, how can you make money if you're not selling cannabis? Well, we figured that out. But a lot of people, it's uh, now if I can't sell cannabis, then I don't want to have a lounge. You know, bars make all their money off alcohol. Blah blah blah. I can't tell you, you know, how many times we've heard that. But you look at a lot of franchise models out there right now, and that's kind of what we copied, you know, or integrated into our concept. I shouldn't say copied, but if you look at fitness facilities and massage places, those are the two I use. So they're membership-based. Are they making their money because of their memberships or are they making their money by, you know, providing you personal training or massages or things like that? So I didn't want us to be a Starbucks where somebody can walk in at nine in the morning and buy a cup of coffee and turn it into their office all day, you know, for three bucks or five bucks or whatever. So we have memberships or entry fees as our model, you know, in our model. And that's a big part of the revenue stream. And then we have food and beverage is another revenue stream. And we will retail cannabis accessories and cannabis themed merchandise and CBD products, things we can retail that are all high profit margin. We'll have the entertainment. We can run it out for special events. So we put together multiple revenue streams. Another reason why we didn't want to sell cannabis was, well, a couple reasons. First, it is federally illegal. Second, there's some severe tax rules out there for cannabis companies where they can't deduct expenses, can't have bank accounts, can't take credit cards, things like that. So with us being a bring your own lounge, 
we'll be able to accept credit cards. We can deduct all our expenses. We can, you know, have a payroll company handle the payroll. We can do all that without the negative tax consequences, which are under IRS code section 280E. But all the marijuana companies out there, the growers and dispensers have a lot of expenses they can't deduct and they're all cash businesses. So we didn't want to run into that. Down the road, we can sell cannabis when it's federally legal if we want to, or we can rent out to dispensaries. They'll have a space inside of our space to sell cannabis. So that's you know a future revenue stream we can have. Most states right now also are not allowing alcohol to be sold in a cannabis consumption lounges. Law enforcement's very concerned about the combination of cannabis and alcohol. Down the road, we think that'll open up and we'll be able to sell alcohol. Our franchise agreements require a franchisee to sell alcohol and beer and wine if it's allowed. Most places right now aren't going to be allowing that. But down the road, what we think is going to happen is over time, alcohol will be allowed. And then over time, everything's just going to meld into one where you'll have a facility with alcohol, with food, with cannabis, where it's all just allowed, you know, and that's going to take some time, but that's where we're going. And that's where, you know, a lot of people think it's headed. I have a question. So obviously you're the triple threat. You've got experience, you've got the operations and finance background. And I think you're also well-spoken, got a great personality, the sales and, you know, visionary side. What was the decision with you and your partner to franchise immediately versus perhaps opening some locations on your own first? I'm sure you get that question sometimes. I never heard that one before, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when we started out putting the concept together, we were really looking at doing some things in parallel. So it was, let's get our first lounge open have a flagship in Las Vegas and let's get ready to franchise because I thought these could be very popular on the franchising side and I didn't want to wait and get a couple open and take a couple years and then, oh yeah, let's hire a law firm and have an auditor and form a company and get ready to franchise, which could take six to nine months on that side just to get documents in place. So we started out doing it all together. Nevada had I don't know if it was May 18 or May 19, but Nevada had just approved their consumption lounge rules. And we had people we were talking to about partnering with us in one in Las Vegas that were real excited about it. And and then we started getting ready to franchise also and put all the pieces to the puzzle together on the team for franchising. Because, you know, if you've worked in a company that had the company owned businesses and then decides to franchise, a lot of times what happens with them is they don't realize that franchising is a separate business in itself. And it can take them a lot of time to get ready to franchise if they're focused on getting the company owned locations open. We wanted to be ready. But what happened to us and what set us back, a couple things set us back. First, Nevada, after they approved their rules, started having some issues. They got sued for discrimination. Some of the money was disappearing on the applications. And the governor of Nevada put a moratorium on consumption lounges. So he killed the consumption lounges shortly after they had approved them. You know, so Nevada and Las Vegas became unavailable to open a lounge. You know, but we were still moving ahead on the franchising side. So we were good with that. Then COVID hit. So when COVID hit and then March of 2020, 
all the indoor dining places and hospitality spaces were closed. People we had been talking to about franchises or about investing in us or partnering with us backed away, you know, because one, they weren't sure when COVID was going to end. And two, they weren't sure when COVID ends, are people going to be willing to go back inside? Those questions have kind of been answered now with things slowing down and with everybody back inside, as we saw last fall and last winter, you know, all the basketball games and hockey games, everybody's back inside if they want to be. Some people don't want to be, but a lot of people are ready to go back inside. And now Nevada's back in play for consumption lounges. And throughout all of this, cannabis was deemed essential. So all the cannabis businesses stayed open. So the industry kept growing. Consumption lounges are still in the same place today as they were three years ago with hardly any open. But it's one of the hot topics in cannabis right now are consumption lounges. And they're starting to open up in places or more states are becoming ready for them. And I've always thought that while it's helpful to have a few units open, that there's still people out there willing to be one of the first ones in and that are visionary. It just takes more time to find them and you never know when you're going to find them. But when you do, you know, you get it launched. So we've been working on getting a partner to help us grow and or finding franchisees to help us grow. And right now, there's a lot of activity with people finding us and wanting to talk consumption lounges. We don't have any franchise agreements signed yet, but we're getting close. And we really think things are going to take off for us and that the industry is going to start growing too. So You know, if we're going to be one of the first ones in and start growing on a national basis and build a brand, we've got to get something open. The other thing was it helped us get into the IFA by not selling cannabis. That was a little consideration, not a big one. But I remember the first IFA Expo I went to in Chicago, I walked in and I've known Paul Rocchio for a long time and walked right in and the IFA boost right there and start talking to Paul. And he knew what. I was involved in with this company and he goes, his first words to me were, you know, you're not going to be able to join the IFA, don't you? And it's like, Paul, we're not dispensing. We're bring your own, you know, because they're a federal organization and cannabis is federally illegal. So Paul's go, oh, okay, send me your info, you know, send me your FDD. So I did, you know, I got home from Chicago, emailed Paul the FDD. They needed backgrounds on management, you know, different stuff he had to put together for Bob Crisanti, who was the CEO of the IFA then, you know, to look over. So they had our stuff for about two months. And then I'm at a Red Wings hockey game one night and my phone rings and it's Paul. So I answered it and he goes, Ron, you're in. They approved you. So I left the game early that night. Got home and went online right away to join the IFA because I didn't want them to have any chance to change their mind. So we were the first cannabis-related concept to be allowed to join the IFA. Since then, they've relaxed their standards a little bit. And there's at least one other cannabis, a dispensary franchisor that's in the IFA. But you know, we were able to get an IFA. We were able to get a lot of things done. You know, the biggest things were the tax breaks and being able to take credit cards and stuff like that. Plus, I didn't really want to be in the cannabis business. I mean, you know, when you're in the franchise business, it's really important to focus 
as you guys know, and as you guys have seen, there's only so many things you can do well. You know, so we want to have a team built to do our core things well, and then anything that other people can do better, we're going to outsource it and hire them. And I didn't want to have to worry about quality of the cannabis or growing it or where to get it from or things like that. I wanted to focus on the lounge side of our business. And then down the road, when we can do other things, we'll look at what makes sense for us to do ourselves or outsource or, you know, rent out space to somebody else to do. But that's a consistent problem right now that a lot of companies in the cannabis industry are having is in some states, you have to be what they call vertically integrated, where you're growing it, you're processing it, you're selling it, you're doing everything. It's very hard to be good at all those different things. And a lot of cannabis companies, you know, they're losing a lot of money. Their stock prices are cratering. They're just having a lot of issues because they're trying to do more than just what they're good at. And we want to do what we're good at. And we've got a team together that's going to be really good cannabis consumption lounges and profitable businesses and giving franchisees support and giving them a system that they can have a lot of success at and create generational wealth. And you know, our tagline is HQF, high quality fun. So that tagline we think perfectly describes what we're all about. Both the team and the business model is a place for the owners and the customers to have high quality fun. You know, safe, legal, upscale environment, consume your cannabis, have some good food, work, play games, do whatever you want to do inside that's legal. And that's what we're all about. You know, it's really we're solving the problem of where people can smoke and we're giving them an environment that they want to keep coming back to, have a good time at, feel safe and tell all their friends how great it is and go from there. Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things, we're definitely on the right side of the pandemic now. And I think even as there are some fears of walking into a recession, if it's not already here, that's one of those industries that is highly recession resistant, similar to alcohol. I mean, people are going to get there, are going to you know enjoy and partake in that stuff in good times and bad. I know back during the depression, a lot of people went to see movies to take their mind off, off of a lot of those pressures. And so I think the same thing would be true of cannabis. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, plus we've got the side where it's medicine for a lot of people. So a lot of people are using it as medicine where they have to use it. They need a place to consume it too. So we're providing that for them. They don't have to smoke it in their house or go out in their backyard and they can hang out with their friends. And, you know, you've got a lot of veterans with PTSD that use cannabis. It's a huge population out there of cannabis users. State of Illinois gets more money each month now from cannabis tax revenue than they do from alcohol revenue. So the states that have legalized it are not having issues with people driving while impaired. I mean, a lot of cannabis users use cannabis and then go out and drive, and they're just not seeing major issues because of that, you know, as far as car accidents or deaths or stuff like that. It'll be proven out to be safe, we think. We hope, you know, and just keep growing. I mean, it's really amazing, you know, how much it's grown in the legal cannabis sales industry in the U.S. is growing quickly. And the black market is still like two thirds, they estimate, of total cannabis sales. So there's a lot of cannabis users out there on our end. For the most part, we just have to make sure that somebody is 21 or over 
to get into a lounge. So we'll have processes for all that. And COVID and the pandemic for us, while it slowed things down on the sales side and the opening up of lounges for a couple of years, it's also fortunately, unfortunately, a lot of companies went out of business. A lot of retail space has opened up out there in the market. You know, so there's some better locations available to us now that might not have been available without the pandemic. There are more landlords that have spaces to fill that are more open to having cannabis lounge as a tenant in their space or dispensaries, you know, in their space and all that. So on that side, as a franchisor, there's going to be better real estate out there for franchisees and probably at lower rental rates than it would have been three years ago when there were fewer vacancies. Excellent. So Ron, if someone's listening, how can they get in touch with you? My email address is Ron S, R-O-N-S at buds-place.com. Cell phone number is 248-302-3344. Anybody can call me, text me, email me to talk about the industry, talk about Bud's Place, talk about franchising, you know, whatever they want to talk about. But we're actively seeking franchisees. We've got a bunch of states that lounges would be good in. Florida, Michigan, Illinois, New York, New Jersey, Nevada, Colorado, California, just to name a few. We're registered in some of the franchise registration states. Some of them aren't good for cannabis yet, so we haven't spent the time or money to register in those states, but we're good to go in most of the legal cannabis states. And we think we've got a model where somebody can have a lot of fun and have a lot of success and solve the problem of where can people smoke. These are needed. There aren't many people that don't get it, you know, that don't understand how these can be successful. It may not be for them being in cannabis or having a lounge or having food and beverage, but, you know, a lot of franchisees in other models never had any experience or background in that industry and they got into it and got trained and were able to be very successful and build generational wealth. So that's really what we're all about. We're solving problems and we're helping people own businesses and create jobs and make money. Love it. Well, it sounds like a great opportunity and exploding new industry, right, for the visionary entrepreneur. So thanks so much, Ron, for coming on and for telling us about Buzz Place. And for everyone listening, like, share, subscribe, leave us an honest review. We appreciate all of that. It helps us to get the word out about franchising and helping people live the American dream through business ownership. I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast. If you want our help with anything from buying a franchise to franchising your business to anything in between, shoot us an email at franchisefounders at gmail.com. 